Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning will be taken from Matthew 16, verses 30 through 20. And when you find it, please stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you, lo- you loose on earth shall be, have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Father in heaven, this morning as we gather to worship you, I pray that in our hearts, Lord, you are the Christ, you are our Savior, you are the one that our heart delights in, Father. I pray, Father, that um, even in the prompts this morning, uh, recognizing the church, recognizing who we are in you, the Christ, the Savior of the world, Father, that we would take that personally and seriously, Father, that we would not be a social club that we would not be a place where we can um, find, find just that hole in our lives, Lord, but take it serious, Father, and go forward with your gospel for your glory and for the good of the church. Amen. We're working on the same passage we were working on last week, Matthew 16, 13 through 20, because uh, this passage and uh, subsequent passages are really a turning point in the book of Matthew. We kind of laid out the um, and reviewed where Matthew has taken us. Um, Jesus has, along with John, proclaimed that the kingdom of heaven has drawn near, and yet Israel has rejected that message. Um, they have not repented. They have not uh, renounced allegiance to sin and self, and started to follow Jesus. Yeah, the crowds are interested in Jesus. They even, as we see in this text, uh, they say, yeah, Jesus is a great prophet, but that is not enough. That is not enough. And so, uh, as we see in this passage, uh, the, 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 it starts by kind of summarizing where people are at. And like I just said, the crowds at least, uh, I mean, the Pharisees and scribes, the leadership are opposed to Jesus. They're actively opposed but the first couple verses there, talking about who do people say that I am, who do people say that the Son of Man is, they basically say, well, he's, he's a great prophet. He's Elijah. He's Jeremiah. He is John the Baptist. He's someone like that, but it does not go far enough, which leads Jesus to ask the question, well, to the disciples, to you who are right around me, who have followed me thus far, who... Do the disciples say that Jesus is, in verses 15 through 16, and Peter, yes, speaking for himself, but also as a spokesman, as a spokesman for the disciples, says, you are the Christ. What does that term mean? We talked about this last week, that the Christ is the ultimate Davidic king that God has chosen and planned from David's line to rule over not only Israel, but the whole world. 
And not only is he the Christ, he is the Son of the living God. That, uh, that, the idea that the Son of God is a functional term. Adam was a son of God. Noah was a son of God. Uh, the Davidic kings were sons of God. And yet, the ultimate Son of God is, in fact, God the Son. As we've seen, as the disciples have seen, as they're coming to realize more and more in the Gospel of Matthew, he is God the Son. And then, uh, we started in on... We started in on Verse 17, where we get the idea of Jesus, uh, who does Jesus say Peter is? Uh, Of course, it starts with who Jesus is, but then in response, Jesus begins talking to Peter in response to his confession. Who does Jesus say Peter is? And we looked at the first part of that last week, but there's so much going on in this passage. There's so much feeding into it because this is a turning point in Matthew. Uh, Jesus has gone as far uh, north, he's basically, he's going to go, and then from here on out, he's going to head towards Jerusalem and his rejection and death. And because of his confession, Jesus says to Peter, starting in verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. You are blessed. You are happy. You are flourishing. You, are, uh, you have a good state before God because, not just because of, not because of who you are, but this, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It lives out that reality of Matthew eleven twenty five through 27, that uh, no, one can, no one knows who the Son is unless, uh, except the Father, and the Father needs to reveal the Son, and we see that played out here. And so, because of what Peter has confessed, because of what Simon has confessed, he has a happy estate, a flourishing estate, a good estate, because of what God has done. And that's where we pause, but there's more, a lot more that's going on in this passage. We a lot of interpretive issues, so we need to take our time walking through it very carefully. And so I'll remind you of the big idea of this whole section as we continue on in what, who Jesus says Peter is this morning. Remember the big idea of this section is this, we confess Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. It's not enough to confess, have a high view of Jesus, even to call him a prophet or a good teacher. You not, must confess Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. But then we see this also this morning, and submit to the stewardship authority of his temple assembly, the church. And that is where we are going this morning, because look back at verse 17. So Jesus has pronounced this Blessing, not in the sense that he's blessing Peter, but recognizing his favored status. And then Jesus goes on in verse 18 to say this. And I also to you am saying. It's very clear there's there's an also in there. The ESV doesn't bring it out, but there's an also in there because what Jesus is doing, Jesus has recognized Peter's happy status because of what God has done in his life to see the Son, to see the Christ. But now, Jesus says, I also, in correspondence to what you have said, what did Peter say? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I also am saying to you. And the you here is, it's all Peter. Everything up until verse 20, it's all Peter. It's all singular yous that are pointing to Peter. So he's talking to Peter, and in correspondence, because of what Because of what Peter has said, he says this, and I also am saying to you that you are Peter. And upon this 
rock, I will build my church. You see the parallelism there that Jesus is saying, all right, you said you are the Christ, and I'm saying to you, you are Peter. The statements are parallel because Jesus is saying this to Peter, to Simon. Notice his name has been Simon up until this point. Yes, his name Peter has been invoked, but he is Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah. Remember that Bar-Jonah there? That's actually a little bit of significance. Uh, it'll play into what we're going to say today, but Bar-Jonah is the Aramaic uh, expression for saying son of Jonah, son of John. And Jesus, in correspondence to Simon, son of John, saying, you are the Christ, you're the ultimate Davidic king who's going to rule over the world, Jesus says, you are Peter. And Jesus has a pun going on here because the Greek word petros, it means uh, a stone, a stone or a rock, a stone or a rock. And then he goes right on to say, and upon this rock... I will build my church. That second word for rock there is Petra. Petra, it's a slightly different word uh, in Greek. Actually, Petra is more familiar. In fact, Jesus had used it in Matthew 7 to talk about uh, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, whoever does these words of mine, he'll be like a man, a wise man who builds his life on the rock. Same word here. And uh, there's some question here. Um, Jesus is obviously making a pun. I mean, we can at least agree to that. Petros versus Petra. Uh, And the question is, and the question that has gone through interpreters through the ages is, well, what's the Petra? What's What's the second rock? What's the rock on which Jesus is building his church? And if there is any distinction between Petros and Petra, it is that uh, Petros is a stone, more of a singular sort of isolated stone, and Petra is like a massive stone, like bedrock, kind of an idea. And yet here, uh, the question is, well, uh, is there any distinction between the two terms? They're connected. It's hard to argue that they're not connected because Jesus is talking to Peter, and he's saying, you're, you're Petra, you're a rock, and upon this rock, I will build my church. Often the two terms were used interchangeably, even in Greek. And yet, what did I just say a minute ago? What, is Jesus probably at this point speaking Greek. No, he's probably speaking Aramaic, because what did he just say? Simon Barjona, which is Aramaic. And what you need to know is that for both of these words in Greek, Petros and Petra, uh, if they were, you were to kind of back translate it into Aramaic, there would be one word, Cephas. You've heard Peter's name being Cephas elsewhere in the scriptures. You can see that in John. Jesus gave uh, Simon this nickname earlier on in ministry. This probably isn't the first time he gave it, but it's Cephas. It's one word. So probably what's going on here is that Matthew is, uh, for purposes of translation, it would be inappropriate and unfamiliar to talk about building on the Petros, like an isolated stone. It's probably that Matthew is saying, I'm building on the Petra. It's more, uh, it's more uh, appropriate in Greek to talk about building on a Petra. It's more familiar as a term, and he is probably referring to Peter. That is the most natural explanation and interpretation of this verse. Uh, other people, especially in the Reformation period, they said, well, it's not Peter, it's on Jesus, or it's on Peter's confession. And yet it's hard to deny from the text itself that Jesus is specifically linking what he's calling Peter, a stone, you're a rock, 
And then he immediately says, upon this rock, I will build my church. He's most likely referring to Peter. Now, what does that mean? We'll get into that because the text will itself elaborate on this. But what you need to say, why is Jesus saying this? Why is he calling Simon Peter? Why is he calling him a rock? Because of the confession he just made. What did Peter just confess? You are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, yeah, that's my Father revealed that to you, and in correspondence to what you just confessed, you are a rock. And you're going to have a particular role upon this rock. I will build my church. Now, we need to unpack more of this terminology in here. Because remember last week, what does it mean to be the Messiah? We went back to 2 Samuel 7. We went back to 2 Samuel 7 where the Davidic covenant is promised, where it kind of uh, explains, all right, here's, here's the promise to the line of Davidic kings. There's going to be a kingdom that lasts forever. But remember what David asked before he got that promise. He said, hey, I want to build God a temple. I want to build God a house. And what is What does God come back with and say? He says, no, you, David, aren't going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. Meaning what? Uh, You're not going to build me a temple, but I'm going to build you a dynasty. I'm going to build you a dynasty. And then God goes on to say, one of your sons is going to build me a house, a temple. uh, And I'm building you this dynasty, which is going to culminate in this as we see through the rest of the scriptures, this ultimate Davidic king who will rule over the world. So when Jesus, whom Peter just confessed to be the Christ, the ultimate Davidic king, and then Jesus comes back with and says, I'm going to build immediately, like, oh, I know what he's going to build. He's going to build a temple, isn't he? Because that's what the Davidic king does. He builds a temple. And that's exactly what Peter, or that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, I'm going to build, but notice what he says he's going to build. I'm going to build my church. Now, unfortunately, today, when we hear the word church, we automatically think of a building like this. Or if we're doing, you know, if we, we understand, yeah, the church is not the building, it's the people. Well, that's more in line with what is being said here, because literally the word church in the New Testament and uh, in the Greek Old Testament, for that matter, is the word assembly, assembly, ecclesia, assembly. So you can even see, like, say, uh, the riot in Ephesus, I believe it is, um, where it talks about the whole assembly comes together. The assembly in, ex- uh, in, in Ephesus, or at least this can be settled in the regular assembly. And what it's referring to is a gathering of people, a people who act with, uh, that have authority to act in a political way. Uh, and so that's what we've got here. We're talking about an assembly, Now, what I already alluded to this, that this word assembly has roots in the Old Testament. Has roots in the Old Testament because when God rescued Israel uh, out of Egypt and brought them out and brought them to Mount Sinai, that day when God speaks to Israel and really the, the months that God speaks to Israel at Mount Sinai, that's called the day of assembly. And uh, Israel was called the assembly of God the assembly of the Lord, God's people, God's assembly. And so what's amazing here is, and it's really emphatic in the original, Jesus is saying, I'm going to build, and we're like, oh yeah, you're going to build a temple. And then he says, my, and my is emphatic, I'm going to build my assembly. 
as opposed to like God's assembly that he was uh, in the Old Testament. Now, uh, what is Jesus saying? He's saying there's a new work happening. Why? The old assembly, the, 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 the assembly of God that was happening at Mount Sinai, that was in conjunction with the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Israelite covenant that God gave Israel. But Jesus is saying, I'm going to build my assembly. Something new is happening here, and what this is going to be identified is the assembly of the Messiah, the new covenant assembly. So there's a lot of ideas that are flowing into this one text. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, I, as the ultimate David king, I'm going to build. Now notice the future here. He's not doing it yet. He hasn't done it yet. He will build his assembly. Uh, when does he start? We believe he started at Pentecost. But regardless, you see, uh, Jesus is the ultimate Davidic king. He's the temple builder. But what's his temple composed of? It's his assembly. His assembly is his temple. And that's already been paved the way for calling Simon a stone, a rock. You just confess Jesus to be the Christ, the son of the living God, which means that's why you're called a rock. And yes, you, Peter, Simon Peter, have a particular role in this temple structure as a foundation stone. But when you think about Jesus building, he's going to be building his temple in what way? Well, of people who are going to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, so that they too become stones and become added to this temple assembly that is being constructed. Now, we understand, and we talked about last week, does Peter get it all the way of what the Christ means? No, he doesn't, because he has a conception, the the ultimate Davidic ruler, the king who will rule over all, and that is true. It's just incomplete because we'll see next week there's more to being the Christ than just being the ultimate Davidic king. But with both of those together, Jesus is going to build his church through stones who make Peter's confession, and then they get brought, like Peter, into this assembly temple. This is where God's presence is now going to dwell, not in the physical temple of like the tabernacle or the temple there in Jerusalem. Now it's going to be the Messiah's assembly, the new covenant assembly, the temple of God's people. You're like, yeah, yeah, but I don't, still don't get it. If Peter's this foundation stone, like how does that work? Well, we'll get into that more and more, but let's keep moving because there's more. Jesus just keeps piling on imagery, and it gets fairly complex, and we're, so, we're trying to unravel all of what he's saying here. He keeps going, and the gates of Hades, that's literally what it says if your translation reads hell. It's not the word hell. The hell is Gehenna. This is the word Hades. The gates of Hades will not prevail over it. Over what? Over the assembly. Uh, it's this, uh, that's what he's referring to. The gates of Hades, whatever those are, will not prevail over the assembly, over the church. Now, what is this gates of Hades business? Uh, first, uh, this word for Hades is often used in the Greek, old, the Greek translation of the Old Testament to refer to a concept called Sheol. We actually just talked about it in the equipping hour a little bit this morning. Uh, Sheol kind of had the idea of death or the grave. Uh, and so what he's talking about here is the gates of death, the gates of death. And you're like, what is that? Uh, what is he talking about? Well, 
to help us out a little bit, let's go back to Matthew 10, Matthew 10, and to the only other place, the only other place where Jesus uses the term Hades in all of the book of Matthew. Uh, excuse me, Matthew 11, Matthew 11, uh, verse 20. So I'm going to read verse 20 through 24. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. You think you're high and mighty up near heaven, but actually you're low down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. And notice how Jesus is talking. He ta- he's talking in the context of judgment, and he opposes, he, he contrasts heaven versus Hades. So even though uh, rendering this as the gates of hell is not quite accurate, it does, uh, Jesus does have in mind this uh, idea of Hades being associated with ultimate judgment at God's hands. What about the gates thing? What about the gates uh, thing? What's that all about? Well, uh, we get some help here. We get some help here in an earlier chapter in Matthew. So at least we know Hades is this idea for death, but also for God's judgment. And thankfully, though, for the rest of the concepts in this section, we get a lot of help from Matthew 7. Matthew 7. Turn to Matthew 7. And... I'm going to read Matthew 7, verses 13 through 27. And I want you to listen for similar concepts and similar words. Matthew 7, 13. Remember, this is Jesus' conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. What's the Sermon on the Mount that his first discourse all about? It's about kingdom righteousness. He's talking to his disciples, those who are following him, those who have committed to him. And he says, all right, if you're going to follow me, this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. And so you get that in chapters 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7. And then at the end of chapter 7, where we're at now, Jesus gives his, like any good preacher, a good conclusion to say, this is what I want you to do in light of what I just said to you. So, uh, chapter 7, verse 13, speaking primarily to his disciples, Jesus says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy, that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard, that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And if you remember, when we worked through this text, we said it's not, we kind of think of this as the imagery being, oh yeah, I enter a gate and then I'm on a path. It's actually the reverse of that. You're on a path and then entering a gate at the end, because notice what the two gates are. One gate is a wide gate to destruction, and the other gate is a narrow gate into life, into uh, what Jesus would refer to elsewhere as the kingdom. 
what's the narrow and the broad path? Well, the narrow path is the path he's laid out in the Sermon on the Mount. This is the way you've got to walk as a disciple. If you're claiming to follow me, then it means you're going to walk this path. It's a narrow path leading up to a narrow gate into life versus everyone else is on a broad path leading to destruction. Let's keep reading. Verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every tree, healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear good, uh, bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and the beat at that, on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. You see in reading that passage, there are very strong connections between Matthew 7 and Matthew 16. We got gates, two gates, one leading into the kingdom of heaven and one leading into destruction, which would correspond with the gates of Hades. You've got, uh, at least, you've got this idea of uh, if you're going to make it to that gate, you've got to walk a certain way. And then how does Jesus liken that to? Well, it likens it to a wise man who's going to build his uh, build on a rock. There's a lot of strong similarities between these passages. Now, what I'm not saying here, because obviously in Matthew 7, Matthew 7, Jesus is saying, uh, if you uh, hear these words and do them, you're like an individual who's going to build his life um, on, on my words, on the rock. I'm not saying the rocks are equivalent here. I'm just saying that the concepts that Jesus is dealing with are very, very, very similar. And I think they help explain what is going on in Matthew 16. Jesus in Matthew 7, though, is saying, look, if you're going to be a disciple, if you're going to follow me, that means your life has to look a certain way. Because not only does Jesus save you positionally with God, he also transforms your whole life such that you walk a narrow path. And that is what Jesus is talking about. And there's rules, and there's regulations, and there's laws for uh, what that ought to look like. That's what Jesus is saying in Matthew 7. So now go back to Matthew 16. Go back to Matthew 16. Now the imagery starts to make sense a little bit, especially once we start to add in verse 19. I say to you, you are a rock, and upon this rock I will build my assembly, and the gates of Hades will not prevail over it, that assembly. What is he saying? He's saying the, uh, the, the, the gates of destruction aren't going to win. That broad gate in Matthew 7 is not going to win. Why? Verse 19, I will, he hasn't done it yet, but I will give to you, that's to Peter, 
the keys of the kingdom of the heavens. Remember the two gates in Matthew 7? You got the gates of destruction and you've got the gates, the narrow gate into the kingdom of heaven. What do keys do? We just talked about gates. They unlock things. They unlock things. And that is what is going on here. I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And then we get this. What do the keys do? Well, they do this. And whatever you bind upon earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose upon earth shall be loosed in heaven. You're like, what in the world does that mean? And again, there's lots of interpretations about what does that mean. But since we've already linked Matthew 16 with Matthew 7, we get a lot of help. We got a lot of help. Because notice the little phrase, I will give to you, namely to Peter, these keys. Who has the keys before giving them to Peter? Jesus does. And Jesus already exercised those keys in Matthew 7. Because this language of binding and loosing, and it was known in that day, it was uh, familiar in that day, the Pharisees used it, this language of binding and loosing was the language of teaching and making judgments based on what the scriptures say. Uh, Turn back to Matthew 5, which is kind of the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and you can see some of this language, and you can definitely see the concepts of binding and loosing in the rest of the sermon. Matthew 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes, and right there, that's the same word that we have in Matthew, loose. So it's literally, therefore, whoever looses one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You see how Jesus is prefacing, and this is kind of the introduction to the main part of his sermon. He's prefacing his sermon saying, look, um, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, then your righteousness, your practical lived out, like things that you do, um, has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. So you can't uh, just dismiss uh, the, uh, you know, the whole law and say, well, I'm just going to loose that. I'm just going to relax that. What's the opposite of loosing? Teaching and doing. And then Jesus goes on to explain, like right away in verse 21, you have heard that it was said from the scribes and Pharisees to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, etc., etc., etc. What's he doing? Jesus is teaching, and he's saying, here's what the law says, and here's how it's binding on you. Here's how it's applicable to you. And then we get that in Matthew 6, Matthew 7, until he leads right up to his conclusion, which we just read, and says, look, here's the way you need to walk. It is binding on you as a disciple to walk in this narrow way, 
lest you, and if you don't, because Jesus is not just going to save you positionally, he's going to change your whole life. So if you're not walking on that narrow way, you're walking on a broad way, you're heading towards destruction and not life. You see how all these concepts coming together. Entering into the kingdom of heaven, not the broad gate of Hades. How does it, uh, how does it work? It works by listening and hearing what Jesus says and obeying it. To summarize... Here's what binding means and what it would mean in that context. Binding means making a judgment about a commandment and the necessity of an application for someone. Loosing is the exact opposite. It's making a judgment about a commandment and the non-necessity of its application on someone. Or we would say it this way in our language, right? This contract, you have a contract here, it's binding on you to do certain things. Same way as a disciple of Christ. If you're going to claim to follow Christ, it's binding on you to live a certain life and to live a certain way. Or maybe there's a situation where the Pharisees are saying, well, you got to do this, you got to do that, and Jesus comes along and says, no, that's, that's, not, that's not binding on you. It's loosed from you. That's what he's talking about with binding or loosing. And Jesus in Matthew 7, at the end, in the conclusion, he is exercising the keys. He is wielding the keys. He is saying, here's what's binding on you, and here's what's not. That's what the keys do. And in Matthew 16, he still has the keys currently, but what does he say? I'm going to give them to you, Peter. I'm going to give the keys to you. And notice what these keys are going to do. Whatever you bind upon earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose upon earth shall be loosed in heaven. Think about what Jesus is saying. Is Jesus, Jesus is saying what he is saying, and those statements in verse 19 are true of him. Jesus bound things, and they were backed by heaven's authority, weren't they? And so now what Jesus is doing is he's doing something astounding. He's saying, all right, I'm going to hand them off to you, Peter, and you're going to have that authority. And you're like, what? What does that look like? Well, what is Peter? He's a foundational stone. He's not the only one. The other apostles, which are standing right by there, are also going to be foundation stones. The rest of the New Testament illuminates that, that imagery. It's not just Peter, but it's the rest of the apostles as these foundations of the church temple assembly structure. But if you read the early chapters of Acts and you read Peter's, how instrumental Peter is in the starting, the booting up of this new messianic assembly called the church. And I believe when you read that, you see him exercising the keys. And his judgments... Now, let me say this, right? Peter's given this authority, but that doesn't mean Peter can do... Peter's still fallible, very much fallible. We see that in, say, places like Galatians, or even in Acts as well, but he's still very much fallible. So what is this authority that Jesus is really giving him? It's the giving of a stewardship authority. Doesn't mean that this is going to play out every time Peter says something. If he's out of line with what Jesus says or what Jesus would have taught... This isn't going to happen, but if he is, if he's in line with what Jesus said, if he's in line with what Jesus taught and what he learned from Jesus, living three years, walking with him, this is what he has. Let's see one example of it in Acts. Go to Acts 5. 
This is an extreme example, and yet an example nonetheless, of Peter doing this in the early church. Acts 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain with your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men arose, wrapped him up, and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Now that's just one example of Peter binding and loosing, but what is he doing? He's saying, uh, you guys erred. You lied to God. You're, you're, uh, he's binding their behavior. Your sh- behavior should have looked like this, but it didn't. And God will judge you. And God judged them. Heaven backed up that statement right then and there. This is the kind of authority, a stewardship authority, that Jesus gave to Peter and to the apostles. Now, notice what this text doesn't say. It doesn't say that Peter gets to pass this kind of authority on to, like, another Peter and another Peter after that. This doesn't establish the, what the Roman Catholics teach about the papacy. It just acknowledges, Peter, you have a very foundational role in the booting up of the Messiah's temple-building program. What's interesting in this is we will encounter this in Matthew 18 is the same language of binding and loosing is given to now, in this case, it's, this is the whole church. This is like the universal church. This is like everything. But in Matthew 18, it's given to the local church as well. See, Jesus is very serious about his church. It's his program. He's the king and he's going to build his assembly. And that means coming under a stewardship authority from given by Jesus as he does this. So we see it first with Peter. How do we experience this today? How do we experience this binding and loosing in this big picture apostolic sense that is happening in Matthew 16? The New Testament. The New Testament is written by, we don't have any books written by Jesus. We have the New Testament that are written by his apostles. And what do a lot of the letters give us? The letters tell us, um, hey, okay, church in Ephesus or church in Corinth or church in Colossae, here's what it means to walk worthy of the gospel. 
If you're claiming to follow Christ and to live for Christ, then here's what it looks like. That's binding and loosing. So that's how we experience that apostolic authority today. I said already there's a measure of authority, similar authority given to the local church. It's different. It's similar, but it's different. But notice all of this is because of what? Peter confessed, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the ultimate Davidic king. You are the ruler of the world, the son of the living God. Peter, uh, Jesus comes back and says, yeah, you're a stone now, and you have a job to do in the temple assembly. And you have a very foundational role as this temple people is being built. And I, I, I can't stress enough that you feel the force of Jesus, the Davidic king. We just don't get that because we've never had to go to the temple to offer sacrifices, and we've never had to go to the temple to try to get near to God's presence on earth. And what he is saying is he's saying, well, we want to talk about the temple I'm building. It's the church, which is why it is irrational and foolish to downplay or diminish the church because that's Jesus' program. That is what he is doing in the world, not just in local churches, but how do you, here's another question, how do you see Jesus' building program of the church? Well, we're wanting people to confess Jesus is the Christ, and they become stones, but it's not like Jesus just wants the isolated stones out there. No, because part of his program is not just saving individuals, but saving them into a recognized assembly of the local church. The, the full church that Jesus is building hasn't been fully built yet, and it won't be fully seen until the end. You don't see the universal church now until the end. The only way you can experience and see the universal church now is through local churches, local assemblies that manifest that local temple reality. And it all started with Peter's confession. So we've seen who Jesus says Peter is, and then we look at verse 20, whom, do the, whom the disciples are to say nothing to. This is interesting. So all of this has happened. Peter's confessed Jesus to be the Christ. Uh, Jesus has given Peter a particular role. And then verse 20, then he commanded to his disciples in order that no, uh, to no one they might say that he is the Christ, which means what? That he acknowledges that he is the Christ implicitly, but also, hey, guys, uh, don't tell, don't tell anyone that I'm the Christ. And you're like, really? We always kind of stumble at that because we think, oh yeah, if, if Jesus is the Christ, then he should just be proclaiming that publicly and they should be proclaiming that publicly because that's what we do, right? That's what we're supposed to do. So why does Jesus tell his disciples not to do this yet, not to reveal that he was the Christ? Well, like I've said before, that at that time and in, in that place, when someone heard that, uh, of the son of David or the Christ, that was a politically charged term. It meant that, all right, uh, everyone's conception was, yeah, that's the ultimate Davidic king, and he's going to rule over Israel and all the world. He's going to put the nations in their place. Now, that's true insofar as it goes, but there's a total element that everyone is missing. Because while the Old Testament did speak of that exalted Christ, it also spoke of a suffering Christ as well. And they're missing that component, which is exactly what we're going to see in the next couple weeks. 
They've got the notion of the exalted Christ, but they don't have the notion of the suffering Christ yet. And that's where the rest of the narrative goes. So that's why Jesus is saying, not yet, guys, because you don't fully get what does it mean to be the Christ. Not only the exalted king and lord of the universe and lord of of creation, lord of the, the earth, not only, yes, he will set all things to rights, bring pro- uh, uh, set all things to rights, bring prosperity to the earth, and yes, he will rule over Israel. He's not done with Israel. He will bring Israel back. It's not only that; it is that, but it is the suffering Christ, the Christ who's going to die for his people. Matthew one twenty one, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people, his church, from their sins. And that's why he tells them, don't say anything yet, because there's more to the Christ than just the exaltation. There's the humiliation first. So how do we apply this? How do we look at this text, and how do we apply it? Uh, Well, first, let me reiterate what we said last week. It's not enough to have a high view of Jesus, good prophet, good teacher, wise guy, not enough to have a high view of Jesus if it stops short of confessing him as the Messiah and the Son of God. You want to get on the right side of history? Then you got to confess that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Lord, he's the ultimate master of you and of this world, and that you must bow the knee. It is a confession of allegiance to his kingship. You must do that. You must, if you're going to be claimed to be his people, if you want to avoid that broad gate of destruction and want to enter into the kingdom of heaven, you must acknowledge its king and his rightful place and swear allegiance, bow the knee, lay down arms, surrender. As Jesus will say next week, deny yourself. And then here's the other thing that we see today, though, that true confession of Jesus as the Christ and Son of God means that you're part of his assembly with a job to do. You see, Jesus didn't come to merely save individuals as glorious and as true as that is. He came to save a people, and that people is called the church. He came to save an assembly because in an assembly, in that temple, his presence is manifested. God's presence is manifested in the world. And you may not have the same job as Simon, but Simon became a stone in the temple assembly because of his confession. He had a role to do, and if you confess Jesus is the Christ, so do you. You don't just get a float around as an individual Christian. And here's the other side of that, that as Jesus is saving not only individuals, but a people who manifest his reign, he has promised to build his church. He is guaranteed it. I will do this. Yeah, I'm going to do it through weak confessors like Peter and like the rest of us, but he will build his church, which gives great comfort. Because the rest of the institutions and the nations and everything else, there's no guarantee given to them. But Jesus says, I'm going to build his church. I will build my church, my assembly. This is why we believe here that it's so essential to be a member of a local church where a glimpse of the final universal church of Jesus' reign among his people gets manifested. That's what we mean by membership, recognizing you as a stone in Jesus' church. And think about this even in Matthew's time. Matthew is writing to a Jewish Christian audience, and he's writing to an audience that's going to have to step away from the synagogue, from their friends, 
from their uh, co-workers, from their family, and they're going to have to say, you know what, I have to back out of this synagogue, and I have to identify myself with the Messiah's people in the church. That's what they're facing. That's why Matthew, that's part of the reason I think Matthew gives this passage, is he's saying, all right, you're taking that big of a step. You need to know that that's what Jesus wants you to do, that Jesus authorized it, that that's Jesus' program. That's why we, we translate all of that into saying, yeah, that's why it's so essential to be a member at a local church where you are affirmed as a disciple and someone's going to keep you accountable to walking on that narrow path to the kingdom of heaven. And being part of the assembly of the Christ means submitting to its stewardship authority. Yes, the apostolic level of authority and like we will see in Matthew 18, the local church level of authority. They're not the same, they're different but there's still an authority. When you become a member of a church, you are submitting to that assembly's authority. There's an authority given, and you have to recognize that because that's what Jesus has given to the church. The church has a stewardship authority to speak on behalf of Christ in heaven, and that authority must be recognized. We need to reclaim the right vision, Christ's vision for the church. Confess Jesus as the Messiah and Son of God and submit to the stewardship authority of his temple assembly, the church. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the gathering right now, the assembly, the assembly of those who are members here as the local temple to manifest your presence. Lord, we thank you for the stewardship responsibility you've given to us. We pray that we are doing it right and in a way that honors and pleases you because it's all about you, Jesus, as the exalted Christ and as the suffering Christ. We are a people only because of your suffering on our behalf for our sins and your righteousness in our place so that we might have right standing. And Jesus, you not only give us right standing, you change our lives. And so we pray that we would walk in a way that honors and pleases you. Thank you for the opportunity even now as Jim leads us in the Lord's table, your table, your covenant sign, the covenant sign of the new covenant. Lord, we thank you for that privilege in light of what we've just read and thought about in Matthew. May you be honored and glorified in Christ's name. Amen.